Thanks again to Linda Johnson for reading both of this weekend's uh, scripture lessons. We're going to start and end with that gospel lesson, and then we'll touch on Genesis in between. So the gospel lesson ended with what's maybe a little uh, self-revelatory line by the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, who might have thought of himself as a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven. Scribes in the biblical world were those who didn't just write down the scriptures or copy them from one generation to the next, but they learned them, internalized them. It was a part of who they were. The kingdom of heaven is the Gospel of Matthew's somewhat unique reference to how God's ways become real here on earth. And so uh, Jesus ends an entire chapter filled with parables and teachings about the power and surprise of the kingdom of, of God's ways in our lives by saying, you know, it, it's like an, an owner of a house who's a scribe trained for a kingdom of heaven and is able to pull out of uh, his, his, in a sense, bag of tricks or treasure, that which is old and which is new. And I think part of that reference, and which is a major theme in Matthew's gospel, is, is how do you take a very significant and important, but also incomplete and sometimes mistake-riddled past, how do you take that and appreciate parts of it and leave other parts behind? And, and then how do you enter a future which is filled with possibility and potential, but also all sorts of mistaken dreams and presuppositions and so filled with its own both problems and promise, uh, how, do you, how do you time those things? How do you pull those treasures out? That's what Matthew's gospel is about, what Jesus is trying to teach us about today. And it's a good place for this sermon to start in terms of old and new. Uh, that's what's made, been made so physically real to Barb and I the last couple of weeks, because as I've mentioned in, in the bulletins, uh, for a couple of weeks we're moving from our house in Brookfield to uh, a property that's been in my family up by West Bend for a couple of generations now. So that means you have to pack all this stuff, and in our case we've been here for 26 years. Uh, we've got our stuff, we still have our son, some of our son's stuff at home, and, and we still have uh, stuff that we inherited from our parents. That's, that's a lot of stuff, and, and we're sorting through it. And some old stuff you find, it's, it's just done with. Barb found all of these old crafts that were half completed, and then kids came along and more work came along. They're never going to get done. They're gold. They're, they're gone. Uh, old stuff. I found our uh, uh, old car ramps from when I used to change the oil in our cars. And at some point I convinced myself that, you know, like now I'm too busy to change the oil, we'll have somebody change it for us. Uh, of course the reality was car engines got a little more complex and I didn't keep up and pretty soon there was a point where I, you could barely find the oil filter, much less, much less actually change it. So, the, you know, the ramps, we're, we're keeping them actually because Michael likes working on his car a little bit. But otherwise, they'd be a goner. Uh, at the same time, we've been finding every once in a while something new as we were cleaning out our front closet. We found a package that UPS had delivered like a month ago, and we hadn't even opened it yet. Surprise! And it turns out to be these little uh, 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 space organizer things for the pantry where we're moving to. So uh, perfectly timed to find something new. Treasures, the old, get it out of here. The new, ooh, welcome timing. The thing is, though, as, as we look through things, what we found is the reality is that old and new uh, coexist with each other often, and, 
And, and they bring both their, their remembrances, which can be hard, and their uh, anticipation, which can be good. So, for example, we found, uh, I found two letters in my dad's old army footlocker. One was from his mom, written in 1943. He was in North Africa at that point. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a mom writing your son in, in a war theater and, and with no sense of whether he'd even get it or whether he would come back, uh, to, to just have the unthinkable constantly below the surface of your life. And, and he was the youngest of, of eight, and so she's writing to her baby. And so how do you maintain your sanity in, in a world at war? And, and the way that letter helped her, I think, maintain her sanity, and maybe my dad as well, was she just told him the news of Freeport, Illinois, which is where they were from. People he knew, places he was acquainted with. Um, and, and that was the whole letter. I mean, just, just news, trying to somehow keep it normal in such an abnormal world. The other letter that, that I found, there were several in there, but the other one that was super interesting was one that my mom had written uh, as the war was ending. They had met at Fort Sheridan in Northern Illinois, and, and so she wrote him a, like a love letter. And I read the first paragraph, and then for whatever reason, I stopped. I think I wanted to kind of think about, should I read this or not? So uh, the, our, our camping trip with our confirmation kids came immediately after that. So I asked them, because I think our confirmation kids have really good senses of, of boundaries and what's appropriate in modern life. And I said, so you know, my, neither my mom or dad are alive anymore. Uh, I've got this letter. Like, should I read it? And, and what do you think their vote was? It was 100%. And it was, read the letter, like they're not alive anymore. You can have a chance to kind of meet them again as the young people they once were. They were like all in on reading the letter, which I still haven't done, kind of looking forward to doing that. But what was cool for me was I did read like the first paragraph and my mom, little lovey-dovey stuff going on there. They were in love. Uh, but just the way she phrased stuff, it was like, you know, it's like she phrased stuff in life. Uh, she wouldn't have me yet for 12 years at that point, uh, but, but there was her voice, fresh and new for me to read, coming off those pages. What is old can also be new so often in our life. And so those were really cool finds. I think maybe the most ironic and, and sort of meaningful find was, uh, thanks to Esther McGee, she was one of uh, a couple of people from church who helped us, who volunteered and said, I'll help you move. So. I had her packing books. We've got a lot of books. We have a lot of books still to sort through. But anyhow, Esther's going through all these books and she finds this golden book uh, for older kids. And, and she hands it to me and says, well, this seems pretty appropriate, doesn't it? And it was pretty appropriate in two ways. Number one, it was written by Barb's mother's cousin, who was a prolific author for golden books way, way back in the day. And she wrote a lot of things under a pen name, but this one was written under her own name in the early 70s, Jane Werner Watson. And what do you think was the title of the book? The title of the book was, Sometimes a Family Has to Move. And for the time in which it was written, it was a remarkably insightful book about how sometimes families have to move. And it's not really their choice, or it's not something that everyone is all in on or has control over. So then how do you deal with it? 
sometimes a family has to move. So we read uh, Cousin Jane, as, as we always called her. We read Cousin Jane's book, and, and we're choosing to move, but um, it, it still kind of spoke to the anxiety and, and challenge that a move is for any of us anytime we move, especially when it's not our choice. So here was this book, The Perfect Find, something old, but also something very new for us and for others. This is the life of faith. We're constantly living in the past and the future, and it comes together in the now, and it's often so hard to know what to leave behind and what to anticipate for the future, but sometimes it actually is pretty clear. That gets us to today's first lesson, the story of Leah and Rachel and Laban and Jacob, and it is a story that's told, as, as good storytellers do, kind of like good songwriting, like, can you think of songs that have like a real upbeat melody, but, but the, the lyrics are actually challenging or sad or hard? Good songwriters do that a lot. They kind of juxtapose, juxtapose uh, the, the, the mood of the song with the content of the song. And, and that's kind of how the, the, the today's uh, first lesson is written. In other words, there's almost kind of this entertaining sense of this, of this story, and yet it's, it's a story filled uh, with, with human hurt and pain and, and avarice. It's, it's, the more you think about it, the more painful it actually is as a story. In, in other words, stuff that we as human beings need to learn to leave behind. But, but just so you're kind of tracking the power of this story, it's about Jacob who's serving uh, his future father-in-law and relative Laban. And Laban says, well, how shall I pay you for this? How about in daughters? They can be your wives. This is a world where women are property of their fathers and then, in a sense, sold to their husbands. Uh, a world well worth leaving behind, but that's the world it's written in. And, and um, Laban has already kind of figured out that, that Jacob is in love with Rachel, who happens to be the younger daughter. Uh, so he, Jacob says, sure, I'll work for you for seven years for Rachel. Now, this is an interesting trans, translating uh, thing. Uh, the, the, I think the translators back in the 1600s who did the King James Version, uh, they, they were puzzled a little bit or trying to come up with an explanation for why Jacob would go for the younger sister. And of course, they were thinking the way we as human beings think, which is, well, um, they were thinking superficially. Rachel must be the, be the prettier one. And so they knew the description of Rachel was, was that she was attractive, but the word used to describe Leah in the Hebrew, they weren't so sure about. So they decided, well, it must mean that her eyes are, are sleepy or unattractive, and that's how they translated it. And, and so the reason Rachel is chosen is she's beautiful, Leah's not. Now, the reality is, in 400 years since then, we've come across a lot more original uh, Hebrew writings, and we now know that the word used for Leah is, is that she had beautiful eyes. And, and so she's beautiful, and Rachel's beautiful. So, so why is Jacob chosen one over the other? We don't know. Why does anybody fall in love with anybody? But, but keep going with the story. So the way the story goes is that, is that 
Jacob's name means schemer. He, he is a wily, not very nice dude many times in these stories. But he meets in Laban an equally uh, suspicious and shady character. And on the night of their wedding, Laban hatches his little plot, which is he throws a big party, probably makes sure Jacob has plenty to drink. And then uh, when it's time for uh, Jacob to sleep with his new wife and consummate the marriage, uh, who does Laban send in? Probably in a veil. He sends in Leah, his older daughter, instead of Rachel. And they sleep together. They have sex together. And then in the morning, Jacob awakens and finds that it's not Rachel, it's Leah. Now, uh, another thing that people have surmised about the story is, is that, you know, uh, again, Jacob's uh, choosing, wanted to choose Rachel because there was, in a sense, somehow something incomplete about Leah. Uh, but, but when you really think about it, that, that couldn't have been uh, uh, Laban's motivation. What do you think his motivation was? He, he, he's an exploiter, right? And he realizes that, that Jacob is in love, desperately in love with Rachel. And, and so he takes advantage of that knowledge and figures, I can, he, you know, if I give him Leah as, as a wife, he's going he's gonna to work seven more years for me because he's going to wait for Rachel. And so that's what he does. He, regardless of how attractive or anything anybody was, the whole point is to trick Jacob. And so it's all about that, and, and he does. And then you get to one of the saddest little verses in Scripture. Um, which is, is, is when Jacob wakes up in the morning, how does, how does the writer convey that moment? He just writes Leah with an exclamation mark. Now think about that for a little bit. This is a, I, I want to do more research on this, but I found it fascinating that the creation of the world, Genesis chapter 1, no exclamation marks. Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, no exclamation marks in Exodus chapter 20. Jesus is born, there is one exclamation mark when the angel choirs sing. Jesus rises from the dead, a couple of exclamation marks. Mary recognizes him in the garden in the morning. The couple on the road to Emmaus recognize him when he breaks the bread. But, but in the Gospels in particular, the places where the exclamation mark marks are most frequent is not with the good news stories, it's with the bad news stories. It's when Jesus warns Peter that he's going to betray him. It's when Jesus laments over Jerusalem, the city can never get it right. Exclamation mark. And so it's, it's some powerful mix of emotion that when the writer of Genesis just writes the name of Leah exclamation mark, it's really almost unthinkable what that means because the experience of Jacob is he wakes up next to someone he'd just slept with and it's not who he thought it was. And, and he must have responded with this mix of, of enormous surprise and anger and disappointment. <laughs> Meanwhile, Leah opens her eyes to see this man she slept with and who is now her husband. And the first thing he, she, she sees in his eyes is what? anger and disappointment. And, and, and uh, I can't imagine their individual or common shock and pain in that moment. Leave that stuff in the past, right? Um, but we don't as human beings. We, we hurt each other a lot. Uh, we exploit each other a lot. Uh, and, and so often 
the deepest, deepest cuts to our, to our souls are when people react to us. And, and it's not acceptance, but it in some way is judgment or disappointment. These are the hardest things in life, and scripture understands that they're real. And, and you wonder, how do you ever even get past stuff like that? But then that gets us back to today's gospel lesson. The beauty of today's gospel lesson is it's, it's about something that doesn't exist and which we can't even fully comprehend in this part of life, but that there is this reign of God and God's ways, which are all over the place and, and, and waiting uh, to surprise us with goodness. And so Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, and, and he makes this huge list, and we didn't even do the whole list. The, the list begins, it's, it's like a woman who, who needs the bread with yeast and thinks she's going to get one loaf and she gets four. Uh, or it's like finding a pearl uh, and, 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 and holding onto it, or buried treasure and buying the field that it's buried in, or uh, an enormous catch of fish when you, when you just put out the, the net. This is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, God's ways always surprise us. They are ridiculously abundant. And they, they're there for us. But we got to do some work on it, right? We have to be willing to be the, the scribes who are seeking to learn all of these stories and, and to treasure them not because they're holy or because they're all true or because they're all right in a certain way, uh, that, that actually does a disservice to and I think damages scripture. The, the real power is to recognize a story like Laban and Jacob and Rachel and Leah and, and see the layers of, of avarice and suspicion and hurtfulness built in that story. And, and yet these are our faith uh, forerunners and, and despite uh, their humanness and ours, God still works redemption and forgiveness and possibility. Our task is to, to work at being scribes who are trained for the kingdom of heaven. And then day by day, we get a little smarter about pulling out something from the past that's valuable so that we can cope with and, and shape a future that will be better and filled with good news. No one, literally no one, knows how to do that. But the good news of Jesus Christ is, on the other hand, everybody knows how to do it. You do, as do I. Um, trusting it and working at it is the life of faith. And then uh, every once in a while being surprised by something you find in the closet that's perfect for exactly where you're going in life, there it is. The blessings. Scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven.